0: Welcome to the Parker Avery Group's podcast series, Talk Retail to Me, where we offer insights and realistic advice from experts in the retail and consumer brands industries. If you're new to Parker Avery and this podcast, we are a leading retail and consumer goods consulting firm with over 600 years of collective experience, both as consultants, as well as leadership positions in the industry. Our firm uniquely combines deep industry experience with consulting expertise and world-class talent to deliver meaningful results. Our approach allows us to build successful, long-term relationships with some of the most recognizable retail and consumer brands in the world. If you're interested in learning more about the Parker Avery Group, we invite you to visit parkeravery.com.
1: This is Trisha Gustin, Senior Director of Marketing for the Parker Avery Group. This week, we kick off a series of podcast episodes that focus on specific business areas across retail and CPG. Over the next few months, we're going to take a deep dive into merchandising, planning, supply chain, omnichannel, and more areas, and get into basics and details covering questions like what's involved in this area? What key capabilities are the most important? What retailers or consumer brand companies excel at it? What common mistakes or challenges exist? And what innovations can improve a company's capabilities in this area? Today, I am talking with Heidi Senses and Marty Anderson, both of whom have extensive experience across retail. And we're starting with the foundation of core merchandising. So grab your coffee or lace up those running shoes for a fantastic discussion with these two experts. I guarantee you'll come away with insights that will improve your business. Well, good afternoon, Heidi and Marty. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Hello. Hello. (laughs) <laughs> I always spend to record a podcast on a Friday afternoon.
2: Oh, it is. It is.
1: We're gonna to get to the heart of core merchandising today. The the first question I have is very basic. Define core merchandising. What is it? What do we mean when we say core merchandising?
0: Core merchandising in particular is a really broad topic and can be. There's a lot of different capabilities that fall under that heading and all have their different pros and cons and and needs i was
2: would say that i completely agree with you because when i was preparing myself for this podcast and organizing my thoughts this morning i was thinking this is can be a lot of stuff when i was looking at um, application maps and future states and all that kind of stuff of what the world looks like and i was thinking yeah that's a lot to talk about
0: yeah exactly we could have a podcast on each one of the capabilities under <laughs> under core merchandising and that well is- yeah and the last five years, capability enhancements have changed dramatically. Even in, in some, in the last three years.
2: And Trisha, going back to what Marty was saying earlier about the how big this is, there can be considered maybe two components of it. One is more of the foundational data kinds of elements, where you think about how's a product set up, what characteristics do you sign to it, um, locations and vendors that are all necessary in order to then move into operational activities such as. Pricing execution that needs to make it to your POS, but it has to be set and managed and maintained someplace in a single repository. Or purchase orders or order management, if you have wholesale customers, how do you join all of that information together to ensure you can meet the demand? And inventory management and other things like that that are all related to product, supporting business needs that are being done by people in the merchandising organization.
0: Yeah, I would. I agree. It's all of those things. And how I think of core merchandising is it's the foundational capabilities that all of your other capabilities sit on top of. And if you were building a house, it would literally be the foundation that you start with and everything else, the walls and the floor and everything sits on top of it. Um, and, and I think because of that, it's sometimes overlooked because it's not as sexy and flashy. Um, there's not as much ROI attached to it. Um, direct, I should call direct ROI. However, it is what I would call an enabler in a lot of ways. And it certainly enables a lot of other capabilities to provide and generate that ROI. And when done poorly, you feel it. (laughs) And when done well, you can also, you probably don't even know it's there and you don't realize that, you know, it's one of those things that if if you notice it, it's probably needs some tweaking and updating.
2: And I I was thinking very similarly that, Core merchandising, the foundational element is kind of the best friend of a lot of other systems where that's the thing you always go to, the person you go to when you need advice, guidance, or any kind of support. Because warehouse management, finance, um, planning allocation, all of that should share a same common foundational data source. And like, like you said on a house, you don't have separate pipes for each bathroom. You have one set of pipes that support all the bathrooms. Maybe that's not the best example, but it's just it's a way to bring and link everybody else together, kind of having a big party with data.
1: So it is a foundational system. Is it primarily data?
0: Well, yes and no. It's a foundation, I would say, set of systems um not necessarily one because i think as heidi said there are several there's your foundational data or master data management um, which includes like your item management your location management your vendor management all those core pieces um, that's really defining and managing all the data associated with those components which as she said is core to feeding out to all the other solutions Um, we sell items that's that's the core of retail and so you have to have a lot of information around what is the item where does it live and who did it come from and then beyond that it's purchase order management so you know you have to buy it before you can sell it and so that's a core um piece that also and it, and it pulls from that that um first set of item loc and vendor as a sense and then um she mentioned price execution which uh, people often don't realize as part of core merchandising we we think a lot more about the price optimization or um promotion optimization or markdown optimization. Those are those are analytic tools that sit on top of core price execution files. So the actual pricing execution comes from core merge. And so that that's really part of your foundation. And then one that I, is dear to my heart, just because I've seen um, the advantages and disadvantages of not having it, is stock ledger that a lot of people also don't realize comes as part of core merchandising because it sits in the financial world. And I think it, it it spawned a, a thought when heidi was talking about these other areas and she mentioned you know the financial pieces in all the rooms in the house and people don't realize that having a stock ledger that's attached to core merchandising that can really tie you in a much better way to your transactional data and tie that to your merchandising and planning data to your finance general ledger. It's not part of the general ledger, but it feeds there and you can put all the right transactions that you need there to do a good job in your merchandise financial planning and how you um, actualize and realize uh, results and execute and, and keep everything ticked and tied together. It's It makes a big difference in a lot of companies that don't yet have stock ledgers or they don't um, have a good stock ledger, they usually struggle with that or they're doing some kind of external trying to balance or there's just an accepted disconnect between how merchandising and planning are, are operating and how finance is operating. And that can cause confusion, um, both in how the company reports or understands their uh, execution or their their sales, as well as what they report or how they um, reward people. There's a lot of advantages to having that tied together. And so I would say, if you're looking at core... Capabilities make sure you don't forget to look at stock ledger.
2: So two quick follow-up points from that Um, one thing is is when you ask Tricia about Is it foundational data? And yes a lot of it is Keep in mind. This is called core merchandising not core finance core real estate core HR so there's a lot of data that does still exist outside of here because it's the data that's necessary to make business decisions about products where it's going who you're getting it from and that kind of information. You don't need to know that it costs $3 million to remodel a location in core merchandising. You just need to know, well, basically how big is the space? So This you, is all about the
1: product. Market. Yeah.
2: Right, it's, it's exactly. All it's about the
1: products you're selling, not the spaces you're selling them in necessarily. Correct.
2: And we don't need to know where we send our checks to our vendors. We don't need to know that in core merchandising systems. Um, accounts payable needs to know that stuff. So that could be held elsewhere. This is stuff that's core for making merchandising decisions. The second follow-up point, because Marty, I'm so glad you brought it up. It's because it's near and dear to my heart is stock ledger. If you think about the last two years, the last three years and what retailers have had to enable, you know, being able to know where that stuff is at any given moment in time, in near real time, do I have product in stores is the only way you're going to be able to support curbside pickup or any of those other third-party resellers like Instacart, DoorDash, anybody else. You need to make sure that you know what products you have, where they are, and how you can fulfill them. And so having that stock ledger and having it accurate and having it current and not, as Marty hinted to, in 16 different places where one does RTVs, one piece manages RTVs, one piece manages damages, one piece manages um, known shrink. It all needs to come together in one place to again make merchandising and buying and planning decisions.
1: You touched on this when you answered this, both of you did. But if you could name the the key capabilities that are most important in core merchandising, so is I, it all important? <laughs>
2: of course, it's all important. But I think there's key signs, and Marty hinted to this about if it's broken, you notice it. If it's not broken and it's working well, you don't even know it's there. It just happens in the back end. But I think there's a couple of signs that you can look for and or listen for that let you know what capabilities you need within your organization. One of the first ones is you're putting together a job hosting for somebody to support your current existing foundational or core systems. And you have to put in there, do you know COBOL or Fortran? You might need a new system because that's pretty old and we can't find those skills anymore. Is there a lot of manual intervention that needs to take place where people are uploading or injecting or typing in stuff that's maintained outside of the core system, like attributes for locations or products or even vendors? One of the other things too is, does your team tell you that they get different answers depending on where they log in and what they log into? That if they go into reporting, they find out that the cost is $9.99. If they go into the core system, they find out the cost is $10.99. You don't have a single source of the truth. One of the other big things I think is that a business user comes to you and says, there's this attribute column, we're not using it, can it be relabeled and can we use it for something else? And you're like, that's going to take six months to do that. We need to be nimble and agile and have current and common platforms to be able to make sure that we can address whatever fast paced changes are happening in our business at any given time.
1: No, I think it makes sense, though. It needs to have basically all the capabilities that you outlined. I think you mentioned four big ones. It was item, pricing, which is tied to item. So I don't know if- Master
0: data management includes basically three basic components, which is item, location, and vendor. Those are the three basic modules of the core master data management piece. And
1: And that's in core merchandising. That's in a core merch system. Is Is pricing in there?
0: yes. The price, so price execution, is yeah,
1: is that part of the item master?
0: No, it can, be. Set, it can be, but it's it's there. There is price related to item, but we're talking about price execution, which really generates the price file that goes to stores,
1: right? Okay. But that's so, part of core merch. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. And so to recap some of those key things that we had talked about, I'm going to go with our favorite one first, which is stock ledger and inventory management. One of the other one is maintaining price execution typically in core merchandising there in the foundational data there's a price associated a current retail price associated with a product it doesn't maintain any of the histories it doesn't indicate if it's a price change or anything like that more of that may be held in the price execution and the files that Marty said need to go to the stores because it's not everything associated with an item just a price change so stock ledger price execution also order management whether it's your own purchase orders or it's order aggregations across different Channels, if you have wholesale orders, franchise orders, your own retail orders they need to be grouped together to end up going to a supplier, some level of order management is also included as part of that.
1: Is that just bundling them into POs though? Because then there's the whole OMS systems that we just hammered, through. which is a different
0: part of the ERP. <laughs> so right, exactly. That's a different. Yeah,
1: OMS but, yeah. is a different module, whole different.
0: But it would exactly. receive data from core merchandising though.
1: Okay. So it receives data. Okay.
0: Yeah. Remember, this is the foundation that everything else sits on top of. This is the one version of the truth that Heidi was speaking about where everything ca- it goes in and is held. And this is your data structure. It's It contains your hierarchy of how what your product hierarchy is, your location hierarchy. All of those core components of your data structure is here in this foundational data layer.
2: I think, Tricia, what you hinted at there too is that there's a part down below and further on where... Let's say you do have retail, wholesale, even e commerce, or you're doing your own direct to consumer, however, you're sending products. You still need, once you group those orders, you still want to make sure that whomever reserved a portion of that product gets what they deserve. One of the things we've been talking with a recent client about is that they place a single order for shoes to the vendor and the supplier so they get maximum benefit of the lowest cost, they meet the minimum order quantities and that kind of stuff. So they group all their orders together, but they want to make sure that their direct-to-consumer, their e-commerce business, gets the 30% of the order that they had asked for and that the wholesale teams get 40% of the order that they said they needed and wanted, just to ensure that you end up prioritizing to the appropriate places when you're trying to. But that's a separate thing, but it needs to start somewhere and it needs to start typically in a core merchandising system.
1: Those decisions are configured in a core merch system?
2: To get to purchase orders and even doing supply and demand matching, that can all be considered part of core merchandising.
0: And some, and you have to make sure that your core merchandising can support. If you're doing wholesale versus only retail, it has to be configured that way. And so there are configuration changes and adaptations that are, that can be in place to allow different types of business models to occur and like we're talking about that that location hierarchy and how you actually write purchase orders that's all dictated there because you don't write to stores you you typically write to your distribution centers or your fulfillment centers and then once you that's all fed into your say allocation then you would allocate to stores or replenish to stores and it's technically a transfer out of those locations to the actual selling locations but you would never Typically that you can write POs to stores, but that would be for limited high-end products that you know have risk and shrink risks associated with those. So there are lots of different types of purchase orders. Some can be to stores, but the majority, the vast majority would not be. The people who do core merchandising well are people who are companies who consider their end-to-end process. It's not just about, let's just stand up core merchandising. This is one of the more difficult layers to actually set up because it's important to get it right. And the only way to truly get it right is to back up and say, how are we gonna plan our business in financial planning or assort it in assortment planning? How are we gonna distribute via allocation replenishment? What do we need in OMS to you know, order manage? What's, what are all the downstream solutions and capabilities that are gonna need this data? and what structure types exists in all of those all of that has to be reviewed first or should be from end to end to say here are all the competing data types and all the levels of consumption because all of those solutions will consume in very different ways once you've mapped all that out then you can make sure that the structure and the hierarchies and everything that's included in your core data system is set up properly and if and that takes a lot of time and work but that's the detail that you really need to step back and do first and what we see sometimes is they'll rush to put in the core merchandising. And then they're like, oh, but we've got this other system, and it needs something different. And they'll have to create like an external transformation extension somewhere to kind of twist it, you know, back and forth. And that's where I I think Heidi and I both kind of mentioned that if you're feeling that, and you're having to do a lot of aerobics and acrobatics to change that data back and forth, you know, you probably could have uh, taken some more time to structure. And, and we see a lot, there are a lot of older core merchandising systems still out there today. It's come a long way, even in the last five years, a lot of that has upgraded and changed and the capabilities have, have gone along a lot farther than they used to be. And so, but it's expensive and it takes a lot of time to put in a core merchandising. You're looking for anywhere from nine to 12 months to really do it well and, and get that in place. And a lot of people don't wanna spend the time and the money. And so they'll just try to band-aid band-aid what they have. And, and the only problem with that is you save some money, but just remember all of those fancy tools that are sitting on top of it, are their success is going to depend on how well that's structured, or you're going to have a lot more intermediary IT projects in between to kind of fix that on the way in and on the way out, I
1: think. So it's like, what's that saying? The, the, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link?
0: Kind of, yeah, a little
1: bit, right? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of broken stuff at the very, especially at the very bottom. You're yeah. not in a very good position.
2: Well, I think just to round that out, because that was an excellent question, and Marty, everything you said was spot on. And I'm sitting over here laughing at the nine months. Okay, good job. Yeah, but that, I mean, optimistically, if if you get your heads down, you should, you could draw this out as an endless project that it could last the rest of your career if you really have poor decision making processes, but. If you think about the core merchandising solutions as an enabler, to enable those things that actually do bring in the money and do provide the benefits, that you cannot do an assortment plan if you don't know what your items are, and you can't do an assortment plan well if you don't have attributes associated with those items, and you can't do an assortment plan well if you don't have all of your products grouped together by something that makes them buddies, like how do I know how many shirts I need to have? If I don't know that this is actually a shirt, that there's a characteristic assigned to it that says, it? because systems and data, it doesn't know, it, it doesn't know something's a shirt, just because you type in the word shirt in the description, isn't doing anything. You just, you need to find a way to create those cubes of data that allow you to make better business decisions and then execute upon them when you need to, when it makes the most sense.
1: And that all sits in the core merch system. Okay.
0: Yeah, every project, I would say, at least for us, <laughs> the projects that we do, whether we're doing a planning implementation, assortment, any any other types of capability project that we're helping clients with, the very first step is we need to look at your data, see the structure that it's in, what do we have to fix before we can even put it into this new capability? And over half, I, I think I read somewhere that like 20 to 25% of all project issues come from poor accurate data or poorly structured data for us I, I would say it's much higher than that i i would say at least 50 percent or higher of the projects i've been on start with okay let's look at your data we need to do a reclass we need to do a change in your hierarchy we need to fill in some gaps of some missing data somewhere whether that's on the way in or out or we just need to stop for a second and and help you get that up to s- to par first. It all starts there because if you start with bad inputs, you're going to get some bad outputs or at least some questionable outputs.
1: Is that the challenge then At kind of at the core of all this is that their core merch system is either very antiquated so they're building workarounds to accommodate for some of the oldness or they haven't taken advantage or they didn't structure it to your point earlier, Marty. They didn't do that end-to-end holistic analysis of what what we're going to need and configure it correctly to accommodate those needs is that
0: it could be a combination of those yeah. things really but, you it, know some companies that have been around for a long time they may have self-developed core platforms before you know they were largely offered and big erp programs. But that doesn't mean that newer, younger companies are that much better. A lot of times those bigger platforms are really expensive when you're a small company starting yeah. out. And then as you grow, you have different needs. You may branch into another um, type of business or channel or you know something that you need an update to your core platform. So it, your needs change over time and it, and it is an investment that you need to plan for.
2: And Marty, cha- that changing over time is a really big point when we're going to be talking about common mistakes or challenges that we see. You had mentioned specifically reclasses. That's where you regroup products based on your current business decisions and how your consumer chooses to shop with you. And if there's been any changes to how you target your customers going forward, and by customers, I mean consumers. But part of that, you know, with that reclass is thinking that, oh, we just did that last year. We're done. No, you're not done. You need to be able to evaluate that because consumer preferences are changing all the time. And how they choose to shop with you may require a different organization of the products. Like when I go into a grocery store versus when I shop online, I may need a different organization online where I want the components of a dish grouped together saying I can hit a button and then make that strawberry pound cake and I don't have to go into six different departments and organize it as cake and then strawberries and then whipped cream. So you need to think differently about your consumers and going back to those Key capabilities that's most important is that if you decide and you need to change how your products locations vendors or whatever are organized in your foundational data and you find that you can't reorganize them then you got a problem
1: i do have a question about that though so back to what is core merchandising so a product lib so whatever it may be peanut butter peanut butter okay and i'm going to set up the description of peanut butter and any attributes that go along with it. Am I also, when you say you set up locations, are you saying broad locations, like I'm selling this e-commerce, I'm also selling this in stores and that's it? Or do you go store by store by store? Is this a- it's is, store by store. That? It gets to that level of granularity?
0: At some point, yeah. it it may not always happen when the item is initially set up. And sometimes it is, there are different times where that can be decided. You may wait till post-assortment planning to, to make the location specific decision. But if you're doing that, and, and I think it was one of the topics I wanted to get to too about success, proper and efficient integration to all of those other solutions is what's really going to save you time and manage. It's funny that you ask that specific question because I'm working with a client right now whose major concern is workload associated with SKU store eligibility settings and within your system, because, you know, we talked about this pricing as part of core merge, which creates that price file that goes down to your POS, which is really the register in the store if that item isn't ranged, eligible for that store, it won't get a price file for the store and it won't be able to ring through the register. And the same thing would happen if it were returned to that store. So every item has to be marked as eligible for a store that it's meant to be sold in. Otherwise it won't even come up in the register as a sense. So different companies address it differently. It doesn't mean that you have to go store by store in the way that you said, it could be, I've had one company where we did a a vendor eligibility and they just said, you know this store is eligible for any product under this vendor, and it would just be an IT exercise to cascade all of those when they're set up, that any item set up for that vendor automatically gets eligibility for a store. I've seen companies just say, all items are eligible for all stores just because it's easy. Um, If you do that, you have to make sure when you're working in allocation or replenishment, other things that you have a separate set of eligibility set up to make sure they don't accidentally um, get allocated or sent a product that they're not really supposed to have and then some stores will wait until they go through the assortment planning process and they've clustered or decided which products will go to which stores and then they'll just have that integrated and a file will automatically set up that eligibility so there are a lot of ways to do it depending on what's right for your company but yeah the very lowest detail that that decides that's why all of that interconnectivity is so important because if it's not set up properly it may not ring in the store and then you risk you know that store personnel manually keying in a price and you could get a lot of error, which creates shrink and risk to your bottom line.
2: I, that item location eligibility is critically important. First of all, as Marty mentioned to say, these products can go to these stores, but it's also these products are not permitted to go to these stores. And some of those, and this is where the setup is important, is that there are certain states to which you cannot ship certain types of products. I'm thinking West Coast ones here, where you can't- always ship. West Coast. Exactly. There's certain products like animal fur or exotic skins that from my prior life, you can't ship to certain states on the West Coast. And considering we're taping this um, podcast during the spring, I'm really starting to look at all the plants I want to put in my garden and you know, trees and seeds and things like that. And they all have state level exclusions where certain plants are forbidden from being going from forbidden from going to Alaska, Hawaii and Puerto Rico. So if you do ship to those states or those areas, it's easiest if you can say these are all the stores and locations that are in California, or are these are all the ones in Alaska. So don't just ignore all those people if they live in Pennsylvania because they're not allowed to get any more cypress trees. It just doesn't doesn't work. So I think it's also the eligibility for product to go there and for it to specifically not go there.
0: Right. And And that's interesting because I just learned in California through a client, if you can't send just a lamp to stores in California, they have to have a light bulb included in them, which is not true anywhere else. And so at a client who was selling lamps and they had to have the exact same lamp in a different SKU setup that included a light bulb with it. So it was a different price, even though the lamp itself was identical because it had to have the light bulb with it attached in, in the box with it it was a different price and a different SKU. And only those went to California stores and they could not go to any other store and vice versa for the, the alternate version of the lamp. So that SKU store is, is really critical.
1: Sidebar, no. do, do you know why that's a requirement?
0: <sighs> it's California. It's just, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know anything better.
1: I'd be curious to know the backstory
2: on that. Trisha, do, do you know why you have to put a sticker on a hairdryer saying, don't use this while you're in the bathtub? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you, yeah. People don't realize you need a light bulb to work and operate a lamp. I don't know. But to that point, it also is not just physical stores you have to think about, but also your any in, internet or e-commerce or catalog products that you sell as well, that certain things can't be shipped mm-hmm. or cannot be shipped by FedEx Air. Certain chemicals like nail polish, acetone, if you tried, Tricia, this would resonate with you. If you have paints, certain paints and primers and things like that, can't be shipped by air. They can only be shipped by ground. So you may want to factor that into decisions on shipping costs. And so it's also eligibility for direct-to-consumer via anything other than brick-and-mortar stores.
1: So if so, the implications of not doing core merch correctly have just so many downstream impacts. And, you know, omni-channel ordering and and all the orchestration and everything is is very recent on my mind because we just did that. But that whole orchestration piece, as far as determining the best fulfillment route per a product, will take into consideration things like what you were just talking about, Heidi, this fully loaded cost of, is that, does it have to be ground versus air shipment? Right. Correct. And that's all set up and going back to the core merch system.
0: Yes. And it can also be implicated in the purchase order system too. One of the things that I was talking about earlier about shipping to DCs or fulfillment versus shipping to store. I did work for a company where you have fine jewelry, which, you know, you're, dealing in multi-thousand dollar rings and and necklaces and things, you don't necessarily want those going through a DC. You want to limit the number of people who have the opportunity to touch that to r- reduce risk, because you can lose a great deal of money in a very short period of time. Sure. And so those high-end items, some of those, they are shipped directly to stores. So you have to make sure, one, the store eligibility is set properly, two, that you understand that shipping methodology because it affects your cost structure, that Heidi was talking to. And two, it's a different purchase order type. That purchase order type is ship to store type versus a ship to DC type. And so that creates a different process in, that the buyer has to use to make sure that it goes there. And those stores have to make sure that they have personnel there waiting at the counter to sign for them so that you have a record that this person received it in their hands and then checked it in. So it's, it's just a very different process. And that all starts in how that, that structure is set up.
2: Item set up. Also, go to go to that Trisha, to talk about how the implications of not having your core systems set up properly and your foundational systems set up properly is you basically have three choices here. There's more, but there are three that come to mind initially. Is one option is you completely ignore all of those rules, regulations, risks, and you break the law and you get fined, or somebody goes into a store. A lamp store in California takes a video of the fact that these lamps don't have their light bulbs in them and then it ends up on the YouTubes and you get negative press on it. So you, you can choose to ignore it. Your other choice is to manually maintain all of this in Excel or some other kind of database to maintain all of these dimensions of what can go where. Your third choice, and this is what we're really talking about, is making this automatic and automated that you have a tool and a system at your core, that supports and maintains all of this for you so you don't have to think about it, that it happens naturally for you. If a product is indicated as flammable or it's like one of those labels on the back of trucks saying that it has hazardous materials, it can't ship in certain ways, identify it as such, and then you don't have to think about it and it won't go where it's not supposed to go. But that also leads then, as Marty mentioned, this isn't easy. We're not, we're not saying that this is going to be a, a cakewalk this is hard. And if you've had your system for a long period of time, it's going to invoke change in people and what they do. And that makes people very nervous. So it's not just a lot of work and effort, but it also means it's a lot of work on the people too, that somebody has to set this up and maintain it going forward. Do You have somebody in your organization who can do that. So managing that change, because we're working with a client, and it is for core Merchandising Solutions, and we were talking about relatives. They don't have a stock ledger. I almost cried. But <laughs> they do still have to maintain their margins, their store-level margins someplace, and they have this report this guy was showing us on a green screen, on his, basically on his TRS-80 computer that he has still in his basement, and he was showing us how they get the stuff, and I was thinking to myself, this is going to go away, and he's going to start to cry because he's so familiar with it. And so we can't discount the fact that this is going to impact not just systems, but people as well.
1: So we talked a lot about mistakes and challenges. Are there any recent examples, and you don't have to name names, but or or you can if it's not proprietary, who's really good at this?
0: Well, you know, we don't kiss and tell. So we're not going to name names. But I think (laughs) <laughs> who who's really good at it are those people who take the time, like I said, to consider those end-to-end processes. They have a data stewards. They they are in control of that data, managing it on a regular basis, and that's really important. I've had more than one client who has said that their merchants have access because they're setting up product but they have access to the actual hierarchy and can make changes at will at any time that's really problematic for downstream systems and even in planning and making sure that you understand your data and have good consistency and so making sure that there's data quality is imperative to making sure everything else works well and that the company is successful and that starts with that master data that foundational data layer any changes there should be planned structured reviewed and approved those structures shouldn't change willy-nilly i know that um, and that may sound contradictory to what heidi was saying earlier about your business change, your customer's desires change, you should you should be flexible and review that hierarchy. That is, She's 100% right, but it's a, an annual review versus an every week review, right? You need to have some consistency so that as you get through your planning cycles, that you understand. And when you're looking to review performance, that you understand where it was, why it happened the way it did. You do need to keep that customer centric. You're always trying to predict what the customer wants. So how you set up your data should reflect your customer choice patterns and and how they're looking to buy products and staying customer centric is really difficult to do. We have some we've had some clients that do a really great job and it took a lot of effort but once it's cleaned up things work amazingly well. I happened to work with one of those companies in the past and and it was a huge undertaking to get everything aligned and cleaned up but it made the biggest difference in the everyday working environment and I have clients who don't have this structure and they, they've they gone years, I would say some decades since they've looked at their data structure and and don't understand why performance is the way it is or why they're struggling to plan or target particular product store combinations. And you know, they're resistant to put in the dedication and, and say the investment, both in time and money to get this cleaned up because it is a lot. Um, but until that happens, they've got a lot of external workarounds and extensions that they're building and it's all kind of taped together. And the the more extensions that you put on, you, you end up creating a kind of a Frankenstein monster at the end. Every time something breaks, that's more tools that you have to trace back through. If you make an enhancement or an upgrade or even just a change, that's a lot of regression testing that has to be done through IT. So they spend a lot more time making sure that they didn't accidentally break something unintentionally because of a change they did somewhere else. But I would say really having data quality, data stewards, those companies that are focused on that and understand the importance of that are the ones who are excelling.
2: I completely agree about the data governance, Marty, and you're right. I kind of glossed a little bit over the nimbleness. It's not because Bob in Men's Socks decided all of a sudden I have a new classification that I want to add, I get to add it, but make a justification for why it's necessary. And I think, and this takes into where... Some innovations are really helping make those decisions for you Is are things like search engines. What right. do people search for when they come to your website? So see what your customers are looking for on your website. If they want a table on a furniture store, are they looking specifically for one that has glass? Is it a glass table they want or is it just a table or a wood table or a poplar table? What are the things that customers are looking for and that'll help you make yourself more focused on the decisions that you're making regarding your foundational data is thinking about how your customer shops. Now, that that being
0: said, I would say, the only thing I would add to what she said was keep it as simple as possible. There is a difference in needing that detail in your product and needing it in the hierarchy versus, say, an attribution. And that's a, a place where I see companies making a lot of mistakes, or I shouldn't say a lot of mistakes, but they're making things more difficult on them, is that some things... Um, should be, if you're gonna plan against them and set targets against them, you want that in your hierarchy because you're gonna be able to run reporting against that easier. You're gonna be able to set targets against that easier. If it's understanding analysis and certainly you know web, you can still manage a lot through attribution, which is slightly different if you have extra things in the hierarchy that you don't really have to plan about it's going to make your overall experience throughout all your systems a little clunkier you want to keep your hierarchy as simple as you can and yet impactful to your business so you know it's it's a fine balance and there are a lot of but her example of you know bob wanted another sock category if Bob asked for a sock category, I would first back up and say, "Well, do the women's team need a sock category too? you know men's needed that category is there an is there a way that I, I'm just missing this category across the house and should I make sure that it's consistent everywhere that we offer socks to make sure that we're not missing that category in whole house and that's again that kind of data discipline and where those data servers can help you to say if this category is important." let's pull back and let's look at the whole house. Is this category missing from other areas, not just this one? So really stand back and take a holistic look at everything.
2: Excellent point, Marty, Uh, especially about making sure that you don't clog up your hierarchies with unnecessary information. And it goes back to making business decisions. If you are assorting your product based on certain characteristics, because that's how customers search for them and you find out the glass table versus wooden table example, that 60% of your consumers really want glass tables versus 40% looking for wooden tables, and I have the product assorted a different way, that kind of attribute is necessary. But then there's also things I think you hinted at that belong in an enrichment database that are not necessarily merchandising decisions. So country of origin and other things that are necessary to put on a website may not need to be in foundational systems because you don't necessarily make your business and buying and merchandising decisions or allocation decisions off of that. So there is a fine line between going crazy and here's what I need to do to run my business and make the best business decisions possible when I'm buying products. That's where, that's where the majority of the money goes in your organization is to the inventory and the stock that you buy. So get it in the right place and do that through the data that you have and the knowledge that you have available to you.
0: And that's a good distinction. I mean, usually what you'll find in core foundation data is going to be attribution that's required that every product is going to have so you know every product is going to have a color family or a a vendor assignment or you know there, there are a lot of core attributes that every product should have and you want to make sure that those are all in your foundational data because they might be required just for item setup and making sure there's no gaps some of the extended attributes or item enhancement attribution that Heidi is speaking of can usually be found in like a PIM or it could even be in your digital platform. There are other places where that could go. And so that's, again, important to understand what starts in foundation and passes out and then gets enhanced versus how much you're trying to put into a load on the foundation because you don't want tons of systems pulling on your foundation data if they don't need to.
2: Absolutely correct. And and one thing I think it's important to note here is that it could differ what is defined as a core attribute can differ based on what you're trying to sell and what you're trying to do. So for example, if you're selling a lot of apparel or you're primarily apparel, dimensions of products may not be as important because you know that how many t-shirts you could fit on a four-way. So you may not need to know the weight and how much space it takes up. But dimensions may be really important if you're a drugstore where you do your planograms by bay and you need to know how many vitamins can I fit on my shelf because when you wanna add new vitamin C, that's not fun for the people in the stores because all of a sudden everything from D on forward in the alphabet gets need gets needed to move someplace else. So the dimensions is something that depends on the type of business or even things um, like footwear dimensions can become really important if all of your footwear is held in backstock and you only have a display item on the floor, because then that also impacts how much you can ship to stores, especially if you have a smaller store that has small backstock. So Based on your business, you need to determine what are the what are those core attributes and what are important to make those merchandising decisions.
1: Just to clarify, things like the size of the item will go into core merch? Is that correct? If,
2: if, if by size you mean, is it available in a small, medium, large or XL? That's important for pack optimization, for merchandising decisions item, planning, replenishment, all that other kind of stuff. So if a product is available in certain sizes, yes. I'm, when you're talking that's about the
1: physical...
0: Size versus dimension, I think, is where Heidi's making the distinction. If it's a selling size, if that size is important to its selling attribute, it's a small shirt versus a large shirt, or it could be a picture frame as a you know, 12 by 12 versus a 15. Th- that's what we would consider size. And absolutely, that's, that's required every you will have something like that some SKUs that don't it's considered one size it's still a size it's just the same but dimension could be the physical dimensions required for packaging it in in a sense you know shirts while they come in larges they can also be folded and multiple ones can be put into a package if it's sold in a pack there's a dimension there and i think what heidi's trying to say is that that could be important for other solutions like supply chain you know they they work in cartons and they want to understand the dimensions of the overall product so what can come through conveyor belts versus what has to be manually managed particularly for large items for shipping from e-commerce from fulfillment you need to understand weight and um, dimension to understand cost associated and, and especially even though most shipping is free these days but there's still a minimum purchase and some really large expensive items may not be available for ship because of it so there. I think there's a distinction, and it's for if that size is critical to the selling of the product and a customer selection, that would absolutely, that size would be attached to the item and would be required in core. It's some of those dimensions that are a little grayer and a lot of times would be an enhanced attribute because they are needed for other areas of the business and successfully running the business, um, but they may not need to be a core to the item.
2: Okay. So if you think about the dimensions, if a pair of footwear comes in a size 13 for men's, the size is 13. The fact that the box that those shoes come to you in or is shipped to you in or is put in a carton and then sent to a store, the fact that that box that holds that pair of shoes is four inches by six inches by 12 inches may not be a key merchandising decision, but it is critical for other things. So it may be one of those enhanced attributes. And for those of you who use a different scale for your measurement, I apologize. I am American and I think of temperatures in Fahrenheit. <laughs> and
0: I think it's important to know, Heidi's not saying they're not important. They may both be required, but they may be in different right. databases is, is all that we're making the distinction.
2: And it, and it also is dependent on your business. It, something, This is just one example of things that are important. Like flavor may not be important to a apparel retailer but it's heavily important for a grocer so just saying that there's not one size fits all for what is a core attribute
0: there are hundreds of potential attributes available and you most companies would have to pick which attributes are critical for them some are core and required for everything and then those enhancements like said or um heidi said are product you know Differentiators, you know, whether you're talking about a food item versus a, an apparel item versus stereo equipment, the right attribute that is necessary to supply the customer so they can make that decision could be vastly different. One of the things that I would say coming up because it's it's that's where you really get into the problematic position of data management and the workload associated with it. And so in the past, because a lot of the solutions didn't have easy ways to get that data in there are a lot of data entry people who just sit and they key in attributes or in the old olden days i guess it's in some of the older systems and so a lot of attribution is missing because it was so labor intensive to key that in lately some of the newer solutions and and there are a lot of enhancements to just overall capabilities you can utilize integrated technologies like vendor catalogs PLM we talked about PIM those things can help you reduce the management of that workload, and you can import a lot of that data, particularly if you're buying national brand products from a, a vendor that you're sourcing from. A lot of those have online vendor catalogs. You can just import all of the attributes directly into your solutions. It's an IT project, and it saves all of that workload, and you get more data available to to pick and choose from that to use in any of your solutions it's it makes a big difference there a lot of solutions in foundation data also have induction capabilities where if you have it in spreadsheets you can you know upload it into the solution which wasn't available even 10 years ago there's a lot of enhancements that have come along that can actually help improve your capabilities reduce workload and improve accuracy you want to reduce the number of people actually keying things because we're human and we are innately flawed and make mistakes. There's just no two ways around it. So you want to reduce that as much as possible. You don't want people keying in data. You want to import it as often as possible and integrate to systems so that the systems are passing the data. You don't have people picking it up and keying it multiple times and passing it. And that's where the money savings comes from and where it starts paying for itself.
2: And to, to, to go back to Marty's comment about having the ability or often you could think that there could be hundreds of attributes available to you, he's absolutely right. And that's an area where you can start to really trip yourself up and projects get delayed or take more time because people overcomplicate these kinds of thoughts sometimes of what is core foundational data. I had a client who had 40,000 colors available for their product and item setup data, 40,000 colors. How many whites Do you need? How many blues do you need? You don't. That's you get to a part where it's so scarce, the data is so scarce that you can't make better business decisions based off based off of it. So, when it comes to setting this up, don't go crazy. Think about what your capabilities are to support it. As Marty said, somebody may have to still enter stuff if it's a brand new product and it doesn't have that ability to grab from a vendor or somewhere else. Somebody's still going to have to enter it. If you tell me that for every item, new item that's set up, it's going to have 400 attributes I need to key in because they're all mandatory. I'm getting a new job. I don't care if I get to work remote or not. I'm. I, it's not. That's not the fun part of the job. And if I'm the merchant who has to fill out the form to give it to the person who enters it, just keep it simple. Don't go crazy. Think about what's core to make the best business decisions. Because as Marty mentioned, it's going to cost money, but we have to enable those solutions that you make the money for us and that bring in the revenue and bring in the profit.
0: And I think one of the things I would say, too, is if you're planning a core merchandising Project, um, don't skimp on the change management because changing your data structure, locking it down, adding more rigor to it, all of those things can change how people work. And so things you don't think about, you know, Heidi mentioned color, which is great. And she's right. If I'm building out a plan, I need to know that white is selling or pink is selling. There could be 20 variations on that color and i do probably need those for color codes for the SKU and to sell it online and that's where the enhancement comes in and i can import a lot of that from my vendor or write out my plm but in the core system i might just need quarter color family to know it belongs in the white family or the blue i i know my my floor is reading blue i don't need to know from a planning standpoint that there are twenty different blues on the floor with with slightly unique names that are given to them by vendors. That's important. One of the things that I actually this is a true story that I, I real, realized and I've run into a couple of clients since who also have this issue is eaches is versus packs, and that's an item process. People don't realize that that goes into item setup and it changes how you write purchase orders. It changes your item setup process. It has large implications if you're doing pack optimization, as Kaidi was referring into the shoe. The company I was with went from only writing eaches because their old master data only had the capability to manage the each, the item itself. So they would write their purchase orders in multiples <laughs> to represent packs, but mm-hmm. um, they couldn't actually write packs onto the purchase order itself and then the vendor knew just to convert it and as long as it was in the multiple they would just send packs most of the newer foundational data allow for you to set those packs and then just to define the pack of which item combinations go in there like the size distribution of of the different pieces that go into it but by doing that it fundamentally changes how you manage purchase order and there's an extra step to setting up that item because not only do you set up each item you now have to set up all the related packs and the definition related to those. But again, all of that can be pulled from a vendor catalog or it can be set up in your PLM and passed over. And, but it does, it can make a difference in the business process and it was hugely different. It was a communication campaign that had to go out to the vendor community to let them know we were changing how we were gonna write our purchase orders and that we were gonna wanna get involved in pack optimization and helping to determine which packs were even available for us to sell so that we could get better return on our size optimization. It, it was fundamentally different. It was one of the largest and unforeseen change management hurdles we had to get over. Even though we had always bought and shipped packs, we had never put them into our foundational data so we never could see them. And by doing that, it fundamentally changed that first step of item setup and purchase order and was a huge change management hurdle to move over. And it took, it took a bit of time and we had to re-understand the workload associated with that, and then how to optimize that workload again. You know, we had our timings down to what we were comfortable with. We had to go find newer ways to re-optimize around that different expectation. So it it is important. And so I would say one of the biggest things, if you're you're looking at this as a project for core merge, make sure you have a solid understanding of the change impact and the change management support you're going to need.
2: And to take that just a little bit further when it comes to change management is thinking about the people aspect of this as well, is that as if you're embarking on this journey to replace your core merchandising systems or your foundational data is making sure that you have the correct decision makers in the room and make sure that it's not driven solely by an IT team, because certain people have certain desires to have things be black or white. It's either a mandatory attribute or it's not. And why not make them all mandatory? That sounds like a good plan to me. Then everybody has to enter in every single attribute every single time, and I can see Marty shaking his head right now. That's a bad idea. <laughs> you, you need to think about your broader audience and have people representing different types of businesses within your your project team. So, Marty mentioned packs. Let's say that we made that a mandatory thing that you have to assign a pack to each product that you set up in your core foundational data. Well, that's a really bad idea because you're not necessarily going to have a pack if you're doing fine jewelry, because As much as I'd love to say that we have to buy six diamond rings to put in our assortment, we have to think about it a little bit broader. And I think, Marty, we had a client a couple of years ago, like before the world ended, we had a client where they had mandatory attributes. It was a jeweler. And I think one of them was the the metal that was used in the piece of jewelry. First of all, not everything's gold or silver that you sell when you walk into a jewelry store. It's not all precious materials. You also sell jewelry cleaner, which doesn't have a metal. Or you might have a lower end that has things that are enamel that aren't a precious metal. So you have to think about not just what sounds good from the beginning, but also from a broader audience and not make more work for your business team. Um,
0: we warned you. It's a really deep topic.
1: It is a really deep to- topic. And I think that's fine. Did we cover innovations enough? Are there innovations in this space?
0: Well, that's what I was, Jimmy. That was the um, integrated technologies like vendor catalog, the okay. item induction. There's also purchase order induction innovations that are offered with different solutions the integration between solutions like creating your purchase orders off of your assortment plan instead of having someone key those in sometimes just making sure things are properly integrated together so each solution speaks to to the each other that's an innovation in itself that can save you a lot of time in those core systems you want to limit the amount of manual input as much as possible
1: I know it's not one of the sexier systems out there because it is so core but it's, and it's so important. What's an ROI? Is there an expected or is that more in an efficiencies and being able to enable those downstream systems?
0: It depends. I mean, most of the time it's it's usually not given a large ROI. It's usually categorized as, as an enabler. Usually you have those returns, usually your analytic tools, planning tools, tools that are going to reduce t- speed to market or things like that, that are going to save you time. Usually the RI that you'll f- be able to capture here with a little bit of work is going to be workload, particularly if say now we, and and this is actually a, a real example at a client years ago, had a staff of, there were literally like 25 people who sat in a room and their only job was data entry, putting in attribution and doing item setup. Once they updated and they put in the ability to integrate with the vendor catalogs and pull all this data in, it was basically 20 positions they didn't need anymore because they didn't need all of the heavy data entry component. And so there's an ROI Related to some of that, there's some soft ROI around. Well, if I'm not spending time doing data entry, what could I spend that time on? That's been getting missed or hasn't been done as thoroughly. And so you can, it's a reinvestment of time. There's there's potential ROI. It's really hard to capture around data error. If my data was cleaner and more complete, because I have a lot of pieces missing, and and if it was if it was more complete and, and lacked all this error, you know, what was my shrink and and other, you know, decision making error that was happening that was costing me money that, you know, I can now clear up. Sometimes you'll run into things that really you can see a a clear line of distinction that I was losing this amount of money and now I'm not, or, you know, I have better ability to to capture that. But most of the time it's fairly soft and difficult unless you really capture the that workload differential. Mm-hmm. That's why and, people don't yeah. spend a lot of money. It's it's really hard to get these big projects across the line unless they really understand that it's busted and these other fancier solutions that are really just stocked with ROI have to sit on top of it. Yeah. And so you'll see them as a phase one, hopefully, <laughs> of those other implementations.
2: And Marty, you're absolutely right when you talk about the price versus the benefit of this, because it's, we had a client just recently who asked us, what are the hard benefits I can hope to get from this. And we're like, it's the workload, like everything Marty said, we're going to have less manual work, less errors, that kind of stuff, but it's hard to put, how do you put, but how do you put a price on quality data and how do you put a price on better business decisions? It's hard to put that number to a piece of paper. And what's so hard is that companies only have, and retailers and wholesalers and CPG companies only have a limited budget. And if you have a choice between, if if there's a choice between putting in a new price optimization solution for a million million bucks, pounds, euros, or whatever, or spending 10 times that on a new foundational system where I can have tenfold my return on my investment on a new price optimization solution, that's a tough decision to make because it's it's harder to quantify the the benefits of this.
1: But and they'll actually about- spend a little
0: more on the optimization solution, building an interim translation to fill in the missing gaps or the that's errors of the data.
1: Yeah. Is that yeah. an enabler? I mean, can you, so, so as price optimization. I know we've had very several examples of they spent this and within eight weeks, they've already made back their ROI, you know, times whatever, right. many times over. Is there a play, is there an argument that saying, well, yeah, if you had gotten your core merchant place then this would have been that doubled or tripled is there I don't any- know that it would be
0: doubled or tripled well it could be if they're if they're doing interim extension work right i think the bigger value is the speed to enhancement and the speed to that ROI because if you have a good foundation you can set things up much faster and you don't have to take the time to do that. And you don't have to spend the extra money on those other investments either. And so you can just really move and groove and just keep going with very minor adjustments over the long period if you keep that clean and have the right rigor.
2: And to extend to that, Tricia, based on asking, what can it mean to a price optimization solution if your foundation data isn't set up properly is manual intervention. Someone has to maintain a file that says, mm-hmm. I don't care what your fancy elasticity calculations say. I have t-shirt, a t-shirt in five different colors. The black and the white never get a price change, and they're always priced the same. Yeah. Okay. And then these four, or I forgot what number I used as an example, these other colors, these seasonal colors over here, they can be whatever price is necessary because people understand that lime green may not be the same price as pink. Okay, fine. But somehow that relationship has to be set up somewhere. So it's either maintained in Excel or it's maintained in a foundational system and it's set up once and you never have to think about it.
0: And one place to look to ROI, which doesn't always get the attention it deserves is IT. A lot of times you'll find that there are much higher costs in IT to manage a lot of disparate systems that aren't really tuned and integrated properly or all these extra extensions that they have to pile on. Anytime a change, like I said earlier, it takes regression testing. That's an IT person that has to do that. The amount of hours and the amount of personnel that you have to invest in your IT organization to manage it could come down. Now, getting your IT, your head of IT to admit to that, you know, and offer up their budget like this is going to save me money might be your biggest hurdle. But there, there is money to be had in IT. And now is a great time to make that investment because as an industry and as a as a country, I mean, most people are moving to cloud-based products and environments, it takes a lot more overhead to manage on-site products than it does cloud-based products as well. So the management and the maintenance of those on-site servers and the people to do those. And I think Heidi mentioned earlier about old coding programs like Cobalt and things like that. We did have a client that Heidi and I both worked on where their one piece of their foundation was written in a language that only like one person knew, and so they have this one person who knows how to write that language, and they're terrified that they're going to retire or you know leave the company at mm-hmm. some point. There is a cost and there is a risk to that, and you really—if that's in place—you really have to take that seriously and and do something about it because it could put your whole company at risk.
1: Yeah, and it's so- amazing that we find these situations in multi-multi-million-dollar companies. It's not billions.
0: Multi billion dollar
1: company. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Replace it to B. Yeah. Um, that's almost shocking. It's
0: shocking. No, it is, especially when you see how big companies are and you go and you're like, oh, wow, you're working on this. I've, I've definitely had to control my shocked face more than once.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, Marty, one <laughs> of the things at that client that we had worked on together, you had mentioned a couple of times to them, was reducing technical debt, which is one of my favorite terms. So is that what you're referring to when saying that this can save you some money on the IT side yes. by reducing your technical debt?
0: Well, yeah. Well, yes. Technical debt can be viewed in a lot of different ways. One is the upgrade and maintenance of the physical aspect of having on-site products because um, that carries a technical debt that you have to plan for every year. It's just like you know your car wears out and you have to buy a new car every now and then or keep it repaired and things like that. The other piece of the technical debt is that you have a lot of systems that are dependent that are also outdated and they have to be upgraded and enhanced over time. And, but yes, it is part of the technical debt equation is that all of that intermediary layers that have to be managed and maintained creates a technical debt that has to be balanced every year because there's a cost associated with it. And the more you can streamline it and maybe have one team versus multiple teams, there, there's a lot of around that. It's a, it's a deep topic, but yes. Oh, all
1: right guys, we got to wrap it up. We are way over over. I know I do think we probably will need another session potentially to get into some other areas of of core merch but this has been fantastic I I have a feeling we could talk for hours more about I and
0: I could just talk all day
1: yeah yeah that'd be fine
2: absolutely (laughs)
0: yeah
1: but I appreciate you guys taking some carving some time out to talk with me this afternoon well, spending time with you guys this
2: afternoon was a great way to end the week. So thank you for yeah. for having us. I agree
1: completely. Have a good weekend. You too. All right. Bye. That's a wrap for this week. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, gained some industry insights, and got to know the Parker Avery Group a little bit better. If you have any questions about today's discussion or wish to talk about any retail industry challenges you may be facing, please visit our website to contact us. Please also join our conversation on LinkedIn. Just search for the Parker Avery Group. And don't forget to share this podcast to anyone who may benefit from these insights. We look forward to hearing from you.